Father, we confess that we are backward. We do not understand as we ought. We are blind. And we only see when your spirit illumines the pages of your holy word. We see light only in your light. So shed light on your scriptures for us now. Let the dead live. Let the deaf hear. Let the blind see. For Jesus' sake, amen. If the social media culture has taught us anything, it is that you should be the star of your own life. The selfies we post are carefully curated to project a particular image. Successful businessman, successful mom with well-adjusted kids, successful pastor with a growing ministry. But Facebook fanaticism is a function of our prior celebrity obsession with actors, athletes, musicians, even ministers. We can all be a celebrity now. We like to associate ourselves with winners. Life is a competition, and the winner is the star. Social media promises us a kind of relational connectivity. But the practical effect has become a greater preoccupation with comparison. Comparing likes, comparing friends, followers, comparing influence, popularity, Attractiveness, significance, successfulness, happiness. And that spirit of comparison is only aggravated by competitive capitalism. It's just the air we breathe. But we didn't need the internet or social media or even capitalism to make us competitive or territorial. Even as early as the Second Great Awakening in the churches and among preachers, the revivals and revivalistic machinery of the early 1800s, the disestablishment of the church led to a spirit of competition for followers among itinerant preachers and churches, which in turn led to a spirit of self-promotion and turfiness, a territorial spirit that can and often does become more defensive than evangelistic. It is into this morass of the human heart and modern culture that Scripture speaks of Jesus and His preeminence in John 3. As we'll see this morning, this kind of competition for influence and jockeying for attention and status is really just par for the course of the human heart. It's always been there. It's just what John the Baptist's disciples, in fact, were upset about when Jesus was starting to outshine their mentor in attention, influence, respect, reputation, attendance, status, and ultimately worship. For a time, John the Baptist's star was the one that was on the rise. Everyone was coming out to him from the city and the countryside to be baptized and to repent of their sins. But now, John's public star was fading as Jesus was rising. 
And the Baptist had the humility to see that his own disciples were being loyal to him to a fault. They needed to learn a lesson that we are still learning today. Jesus must be preeminent in our discipleship, in our joy, and in our faith. That's the point of the text this morning. Jesus must be preeminent in our discipleship, our joy, and in our faith. He must increase. And we must decrease. If that was true for John the Baptist, it is true for you and me. He must increase. And we must decrease. Jesus must be preeminent, first of all, in our discipleship, verses 22 to 26 in John 3. If you'll turn there with me, John 3, 22 to the end of the chapter, we'll begin with verses 22 to 26. After this, after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about being born again, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at the Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing, and all are going to him. Or rather, probably in their tone of voice, all are going to him. So Jesus is baptizing people in the countryside of Judea. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it's actually Jesus overseeing his disciples who are baptizing there. John is baptizing north of that near a little town called Salim in Samaria. John chose that spot because there was a lot of water there. Seems like solid circumstantial evidence for immersion as the mode of baptism, not sprinkling. From the other Gospels, we know Jesus began his public ministry by preaching repentance at the arrival of the kingdom of God, which was the Baptist message. So the meaning of Jesus' baptism here or his disciples baptizing, is probably much the same as John's baptism. Repentance in preparation for the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus as king. The difference, of course, would be that when you were baptized by Jesus' disciples, you became a disciple of Jesus, not a disciple of John the Baptist. That's how it worked in the first century. There were at the time a number of itinerant leaders, teachers, preachers, disciple makers, whether people like the Essenes or the Pharisees or other sects, to identify with them in a ritual way, you got baptized by them. That was a way of identifying yourself with their teaching and ethos and lifestyle. And sometimes these baptizing sects would criticize or compete with each other. So as John and Jesus are baptizing in different areas, John the Baptist's disciples get drawn into a controversy with a Jew over purification, which which is what any baptism would have symbolized, the washing away 
of sins. And this word for purification is the same one John used for the water pots at the wedding of Cana in chapter 2. And those water pots were used for Jewish purification. There the idea was that Jesus is the one who is fulfilling the meaning of Jewish purification rites. He supersedes, he makes obsolete the water of the old covenant with the wine of the new covenant. And here, while we don't have a whole lot to go on, if the purification issue is raised by a Jew at stake is probably the question of whose baptism really purifies you, John's or Jesus? Who can cleanse you? Which one is better? Which one is more authoritative? Which one is more effective? Now, that controversy may be foreign to us, but this should be very encouraging to you, sinner. Because Jesus already knows you're dirty. Your sin is not a secret that you can or should keep from him. Remember, he knows what is in humanity from the end of chapter 2. But that is why he knows he must cleanse you. That's why he wants you to be baptized by him. He wants you to be washed by him. He expects to cleanse you. You ever think about that? He's baptizing people because he expects that they need him to wash them. Of course, it's not the water itself that washes your sins. It's that the water is the outward symbol that just as surely as you feel the water on your skin, so surely does Jesus wash your heart clean from the pollution of your sin. And your conscience clean from the guilt of your sin. That's what you should get from looking back on your water baptism. Just as I felt immersed and wet with the water of baptism, just that surely can I be convinced that Jesus' blood has cleansed my conscience. And Jesus expected me to need that from him. And that's why I came to him in the first place. And therefore, I can keep on coming to him because he knows and expects me to. That's what my whole relationship with him is built on. Him knowing I need him to cleanse me. Sinner, many of us presume, like you do, that we can only begin to follow Jesus after we have cleaned up our own act ourselves. But baptism symbolizes that Jesus wants us to come to him so that he can clean up our act. That's what we're testifying to when we are publicly baptized, that he cleaned up our act. He baptized us in his spirit. He washed our conscience clean. Baptism isn't something you do to yourself. 
No one baptizes themselves. You are baptized to symbolize that Jesus is the one who baptized your conscience and washed your heart and washed your life. So we come to Jesus as we are in the pollution and guilt of our sins. And when we do, he cleanses our hearts and consciences, which is something only he has the power and authority to do. That is why we get baptized as Christians, to show that Jesus has already done inwardly for us what baptism looks like outwardly. And Jesus gives us that sensible, tangible sign as a sweet reminder and memorial and assurance, just as surely as you felt that water, so surely I have cleansed you. And that is why Jesus must be preeminent in the purity, in the purity of our discipleship. Because he's the one who is the source and model and power of our inward purity as we follow him. And that is why Jesus must be preeminent not only in the purity of our discipleship, but also in the loyalty of our discipleship to him. Verse 26, the Baptist disciples approach John with what they think is pretty troubling news. John has competition because now Jesus is baptizing everybody and their brother. And the way they put it to John is revealing, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Read that sentence again in your Bible. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. How are they thinking of Jesus there? Only in relationship to John. They still think of John as primary and Jesus as secondary because John came first. Jesus is only the one to them who was with John. John was not with Jesus. Jesus was with John. And Jesus is only the one to whom John has witnessed, not the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet there's an irony to that misunderstanding. They use the perfect tense, the one to whom you have borne witness, is how the text reads. So John has testified to Jesus in a completed sense that should have had an ongoing result in his own disciples. Starting to follow Jesus as the Lamb of God, and yet John's disciples apparently still don't understand John's own testimony about Jesus. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? That John has testified to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Instead, they actually complain of that intended result in their lives when they say, all are going to him. I I think there's an exclamation point to that statement in their hearts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is going too far. All are going to him. What about you, John? And what about us as your disciples? Instead of following John, everyone is following Jesus, and that is a problem to John's followers. That does not follow from their misunderstanding of John's ministry. They followed the Baptist, which was fine, until the one came to whom the Baptist was only pointing. John had been clear 
that he was not in it to make a following for himself. He was in it to make a following for Jesus. He's about to reiterate that again in the next few verses. For now, the disciples of John the Baptist are misunderstanding the whole point of their discipleship to John. The point is not to be loyal to him. The point is to follow the one the Baptist was pointing to. Don't just be a disciple of John. Be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus must be preeminent then, not only in the purity of our discipleship, but in the loyalty, the fidelity of our discipleship. So just to be clear, every Christian should be making disciples somehow, but disciples who follow Jesus. That's what the Baptist is doing. And that is what his followers were misunderstanding. Yet the Baptist was just doing what Andrew did when he found Peter. He introduced him to Jesus. It's what Philip did when he found Nathaniel, introduced him to Jesus. And now John the Baptist was leading others to meet Jesus, to worship Jesus, to follow Jesus, not to follow himself. And we should only want them to follow us insofar as we are pointing them to Jesus. Jesus is the one who must remain preeminent in all of our ultimate loyalties, in our preaching and evangelism, in our disciple-making, in our encouragement of others. We don't want them dependent on us. We want them dependent on Jesus. We don't want to make people impressed with us or ultimately loyal to us, but to Jesus. If self is always the burning center of your life and ministry. It becomes this kind of insatiable vortex of narcissism, as if you think everybody else should need you or be impressed with you or relate to you on your terms. But we want them to direct all of that ultimate affection and dependence, and loyalty, and respect to Jesus. This complaint from John's disciples critiques our own Christian ministry envy and our jealousy of other people's discipling relationships in the church. We don't want to admit that that is in our hearts, but it's there. It's there. Every real Christian, of course, wants to be faithful and fruitful in the lives of others. That's really good. What's bad, what's immature, what's sinful, what's arrogant is when a Christian, a church member, gets jealous of someone else's discipling relationships or becomes competitive in developing relationships and doing hospitality and developing a personal following within the church. That's what's bad. So you're a longtime member, you like reading the Bible, good books with others, counseling others, you see a younger Christian enter the life of the church and you want to encourage that person, then one of two things happens. Either you get possessive with those friendships or you get jealous that someone else has the friendship with that person that you wanted to have and don't have. Oh, I wanted to be the one to bear fruit in that person's life. I wanted to be the one that they wanted to be with, that they wanted to be taught by. Well, now what? Who do you want them to follow more, Jesus or you? If that other person is being fruitful in their life to help them follow Jesus, what does it matter to you that they're getting together with that other person? 
So we should not be turfy about our discipling relationships or the people we lead in a Bible study or the people we might be doing ministry with. They're Jesus' disciples. They're not yours. They're not mine. This also applies to our relationships with other healthy, Christ-honoring local churches. We should be happy to send other people their way when that's what's best for their discipleship to Jesus. We're not in competition with them. If they're making followers of the same Jesus, then we are on the same team with that church. So Jesus must be preeminent in our discipling. Second, Jesus must be preeminent in our joy. Verses 27 to 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus must be preeminent in our joy. He must be preeminent in our joy in his preeminence with God. We have to delight in the fact that Jesus has preeminence with God. John's whole answer in verses 27 to 30 is moving towards joy. What makes him rejoice to the full? It is Jesus. And to begin with, it's Jesus' preeminence with God the Father that John acknowledges and celebrates in verses 27 and 28. A person cannot receive even a single thing unless it is given him from heaven. And there may be even a double meaning in John's answer. It's clear he means that Jesus could not receive the popular following that he's getting if that hadn't been given to him from heaven. But it's also true in turn that no one would be following Jesus like this at all if God himself had not favored Jesus with the authority to cleanse and forgive sinners. So Jesus is not just preeminent with people. He's preeminent with God. And John wants his own disciples not only to acknowledge that in a kind of begrudging way, but to rejoice with him in that. Jesus is special to God. Jesus is most important to God. Jesus has special status with God and special authority from God, and we should all be glad that he does. In fact, John the Baptist thinks his own disciples should already know this from listening to his own preaching, 328. You yourselves bear me witness that I said that I am not the Christ, but that I have been sent before that one. The Baptist thinks his followers should know this from his own preaching. And that he himself would not be offended for them to quit following him and follow Jesus. After all, that's what he understood his ministry to be about, gathering and preparing followers for Jesus, not for himself. Jesus is far more important than John's disciples realize. He's not just another baptizer or preacher. Jesus is the Christ, the prophet, priest, king. John is not that. So they should only be following John insofar as he was leading them to follow Jesus. And if Jesus enjoys preeminence with the bride, God's people, all the better. 
So our joy has to be also in Jesus' preeminence with the church, the bride. Verse 29, the Baptist tells this little abbreviated parable, the one who has the bride. That's the bridegroom. That's how John explains Jesus' apparent popularity, at least in the initial stages of his ministry. From the perspective of John's disciples, everybody's going to Jesus, and that felt like a betrayal of John the Baptist to his followers. But they've got it all wrong. There's no slide on the Baptist that everybody's going to Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. Come to claim his bride, his people. The bride belongs to Jesus. This is only right. John's not trying to steal the bride's loyalty or attention. John is facilitating Jesus' preeminence and the consummation of his marriage to the bride. For John, the bride going to Jesus is no betrayal at all. It is mission accomplished because John is merely the friend of the groom. So when the groom gets all of the bride's attention... The best man is not jealous of that relationship. He is joyful about it. And friends, this is why we are not allowed to let the church be about us. Or our needs, or our preferences, or our gifts and ministries, or our own prominence in any way whatsoever. The church has to be about Jesus and holding out Jesus to sinners and exalting him to the saints and facilitating their love for and loyalty to Jesus. This is why we preach Christ from all of Scripture and not just morality from all of Scripture because we want you to be enthralled with Jesus. And we think that the more you look at Jesus, the more you'll be transformed into his image. And this is why we sing the songs we sing. This is why we encourage each other to make much of Jesus and to forget about ourselves. Because Jesus deserves all the attention and all the affection of all of his church. And when Jesus has the church's affection and attention, our joy in his presence is not diminished. It's enhanced. Because the happiness of the bride in the groom is what should make the groom's friend happy. And our joy should be in his presence with us, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That's the exact opposite of what John's disciples thought he was going to say. John is the bridegroom's friend, the best man, as it were. So John's not competing with Jesus for the bride's attention. That would be the true betrayal. The groom's arrival to claim his bride is the great moment for the best man. I can hear him. He's here. He's arrived. Let the reception begin. Jesus' presence with us, his exaltation, his praise among us. That should be our joy. That the presence of Jesus among his people is not what moves your heart. If that's not why you're here, you're not getting it. You're not getting what we're talking about. If you want church to be about something else, we don't have something else for you. And our joy should be in his greatness at the expense of ours. 
John's conclusion from his role compared to Jesus' role is he must increase, I must decrease. That is not just one ministry model among many. It is a necessity for every preacher and for any evangelist. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. That is precisely the problem with a modern therapeutic gospel which says God just wants me to feel good about myself and he wants to solve my problems as I define them. You see, there's no place for self-decreasing in that therapeutic gospel. Spiritual doctors prescribe therapeutic Jesus precisely so that we can be the ones who increase. Here, here's therapeutic Jesus. He will solve your problem. And don't forget who gave you the bottle. And therefore, to preach that I must decrease is the arch heresy that the therapeutic gospel must condemn. You see how that's the opposite of the real gospel? Therapeutic Jesus, then, is a whole different Jesus. It's a different gospel. This is also true for any gospel of self-realization, self-fulfillment, self-validation. And again, you can see how our whole cultural moment is militating against he must increase and I must decrease. The global village insists on just the opposite, that the Jesus of the Bible must decrease and self must take his place, self whether as victim or as sufferer or as Messiah, self as prophet of a subjective truth or priest for self-proclaimed forgiveness and justification or the king of the soul. That is the great seduction the anointing of the self. But as it is necessary for John to decrease, so also it is necessary for you and for me to decrease. We must be smaller in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. so that Jesus would be large in the eyes of others. You want to know why you suffer the way you do in the Christian life? This is it. This is what God is doing in your life. You are decreasing, and Jesus is increasing. And that is your encouragement in Christian suffering. And if that's not an encouragement to you, That's not a good sign. We must be smaller in the eyes of others so that Jesus would be large in the eyes of others. We only want want people to follow us insofar as we encourage them to follow Jesus. We do not encourage them to make much of us or themselves. 
we encourage them to make much of Jesus. And the great temptation today is to attend a church that will make much of either the preacher or the hearers, which are both forms of idolatry. It is especially popular for people to look to churches who will make much of them as they identify themselves by their favorite sins, justify their joy or their privacy in their adultery or fornication, their sexual immorality or homosexuality, leave them to find their preeminent joy in their own greed or selfishness or self-direction or ease and security and prosperity and private enjoyment of their own materialism. That's where people want to go to church today, is it not? Just leave me alone. Leave them to find their joy in their delusion of self-righteousness and moral superiority. Just rubber stamp my righteousness. That's what I want from a church. Because I want to keep on increasing Even though I will not say that publicly, I will cherish that privately. And I will have my church cherish it too, says the self. And then let them rejoice in their perceived innocence of their own victimhood rather than admitting that all of our sin victimizes Jesus on the cross. Against all of this, Jesus must, must increase And I, we, you, must decrease. It's not an option. This is not Christianity on steroids. This is not taking Christianity too far. This is not taking Jesus too seriously. This is not graduate-level Christianity. This is it. This is the only Christianity on offer. He must increase. I must decrease. That must be Our joy, this joy of mine is now complete if these things are true. It's not begrudging. It's not a concession. It is our joy. But Jesus will only be preeminent in our joy if Jesus is first preeminent in our faith. Verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus, third and finally, must become preeminent in our faith. Specifically, he must become preeminent as the authority for our faith. John 3, 31 to 32 is a not-so-veiled comparison between Jesus from above and John from the earth. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God from heaven, as he says, then we'd have no trouble with Jesus increasing and self-decreasing. 
That is as it should be. Jesus is above all in rank because he is above all in his eternal origins. He is from heaven. Therefore, he has authority to increase in attention and power, even at the expense of whatever attention and power we might enjoy for a time. He who is of the earth is probably John, which would mean that he speaks of heaven only in a derivative way, whereas Jesus speaks of heaven in a direct way, what he's seen and heard. But he who belongs to the earth speaks in an earthly way, may also be a glancing shot at John's disciples who think Jesus somehow stole attention or popularity from John. It's a worldly way of thinking. And if that is how we think of the Christian life and ministry in the church, Jesus must become preeminent as the authority for our faith. John the Baptist then is a witness, bearing witness to a better witness, a more authoritative witness, because he witnesses to what he has seen and heard directly in heaven as the Son of God. What Jesus says about heaven is reliable because he existed there from eternity past as the second person of the Godhead before he ever took on human flesh. Friends, isn't that what you demand? If you're an unbeliever, isn't that what you think should happen? Isn't that what you have been complaining that God has not done for you? Why doesn't he just send someone from heaven to tell us well, he did. And you don't believe him. Jesus has borne his testimony. And you have not trusted it. Jesus has the authority of firsthand testimony about God in heaven, and therefore his authority must govern and ground our faith. Just because what he says about heaven and about you, and about me, just because that's not convenient, just because that's offensive, just because that's not as good as we wish it were about ourselves, just because it doesn't affirm us, doesn't mean we shouldn't believe it. Jesus deserves preeminence as the authority figure who shapes our faith and governs what we believe and don't believe about God and how God relates to us as individuals and to his people. And yet, ironically, no one receives Jesus' testimony. Relative to what you would expect of a firsthand witness of heaven come to bear that witness to us on earth, no one believes Jesus' testimony. And yet, Jesus must be preeminent in our faith despite the unpopularity of our faith in him. He is ignored marginalized, ridiculed, rejected, condemned as the very kind of sinner that he came to save. We crucified him for it. This is what Jesus said in Nicodemus in verse 11. We testify to what we have seen and heard, and you all do not receive our testimony. This is what John told us at the outset in chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Humanity's general response to Jesus is rejection. And so if we would have Jesus be preeminent in our joy and in our faith, then he must be that to us despite the unpopularity of our faith in his real preeminence. Let Jesus be true 
even though every man is a liar. And he must be preeminent in our faith in order to, be, in order to honor the Father by our faith. In verses 33 to 35. Verse 33, whoever does receive Jesus' testimony sets his seal to the fact not simply that Jesus is true, but that God the Father is true. That God is true as the one who sent Jesus. That's why faith in Jesus is really the ultimate way to keep the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You honor God's name, His reputation, His character, His trustworthiness, ultimately by trusting that Jesus is who Jesus says He is, the one sent from God. The reason you confirm God's truthfulness by trusting Jesus in verse 34 is that Jesus perfectly speaks God's words because God gave His own Spirit without measure to Jesus. And the reason God gave the Spirit without measure to Jesus in verse 35 was out of love for Jesus as His Son, giving the Son all things, meaning not just possession, but understanding for witness and for rule. And in that sense... In the sense that God has given all things to the Son, God thinks Jesus deserves to be preeminent in your heart and in your faith. To disagree with the preeminence of Jesus is to disagree with God. To mistrust Jesus is to take God's name in vain. And so it is also in this sense that Jesus must increase, not only relative to John the Baptist, but relative to our own evaluation of Jesus' testimony. Jesus must increase in our own eyes in the trustworthiness of His testimony to heaven and truth and God, and in our own esteem of His testimony, His life, His death, His resurrection. So ask yourself, Christian, is Jesus increasing in your own life? He should be. Jesus should be increasing. Jesus should not be a stagnant entity in your heart. He should be increasing. Your thoughts, your affections, and your desires, and your emotions, and your priorities, and your conversation, your speech, and your inclinations of what you want to do, in your appetites, what you hunger for, what you thirst after. Jesus should be increasing in your home, your preoccupations, your entertainments, your reading, your thinking, your imaginations, your words, your habits, your relationships. What gets your time? Why? What gets your attention? Why? What do you talk about? Why do you talk about that so much? Jesus should be increasing in your work and the reasons you do what you do, Monday to Saturday. He should be increasing in your own serving or teaching here at church. And in a corresponding way, you yourself should be decreasing in importance in your own eyes. You should be attracting less and less attention to yourself and more and more attention to Jesus. You should be denying yourself more becoming more self-effacing, more modest, more humble, more unassuming, more off to the side with Jesus front and center. 
not as a begrudging concession, but out of joy for who Jesus is to you and who you want him to be in the eyes of other people when they look at you. You should be more ready and willing to speak of Jesus and his truth than your favorite team in the tournament, your most gratifying hobby, your most lucrative investment. We often justify ourselves that hobbies are not sins, and that can be true enough. But friend, what do people know you as and for? Are you known by other people because of your profession, because of your hobby, because of where you live, what you live for, what you talk about most? You are a Christian first. That should be evident in what you want to think about and talk about with each other and what you want to spend time doing together. It should be evident in your reading, what gets your attention, time, energy. Jesus must increase so that he is preeminent, not least so that we reap the eternal reward of our faith in him. In verse 36, verse 36 contrasts the effects of trusting Jesus and not trusting Jesus. The one who believes into the Son has eternal life. He has it already now in a preliminary form. We enjoy eternal life when we know and trust and love Jesus for who he is. This is eternal life, that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, John 17. That is the good news. Knowing, loving, communing with Jesus. Trusting his firsthand testimony of God's holiness, our sin, His sacrifice for us on the cross, His call to us to turn from our sin and self-reliance, from looking at vanity, to rely wholly on Him. That is the path to eternal life, purified by Jesus' blood and righteousness, rejoicing in His preeminence, trusting in His truth and grace. That's good news. But for all who reject that good news, there's bad news that remains true whether it's acknowledged or not. Jesus must be preeminent in our faith, for us to escape the penalty of unbelief. The one who is disobedient to the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is on the one who is persistently, stubbornly, continually disobedient to the Son of God. So who is this person on whom God's wrath remains? Who is that? Well, he is the opposite of the one who believes or trusts in the Son of God. So the person who disobeys the Son is the one who stubbornly thinks that he doesn't need to trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness to be forgiven of his sin and reconciled to God. He's the one who thinks Jesus is fine for others, but that's just not how I roll. It's the one who thinks Jesus was probably a prophet, but not the Son of God. And it's the one, when he hears all these things, may give lip service to them, say he believes them, but still blesses himself in his heart, saying, I will be safe, though I live in the stubbornness of my heart. Deuteronomy 29. That is the root that bears poisonous fruit in Hebrews 12. That is the person on whom the wrath of God remains not only the one that rejects all these things outwardly 
and refuses to believe in Christ, but also the one who says he believes and then goes on in the stubbornness of his own heart. But what then is this wrath of God? Well, God's wrath is not cosmic karma, as if it's nothing more than the impersonal outworkings of a moral universe working against you. As bad as that would be, God's wrath is far worse than that. It's personal. Now, this is not God flying off the handle or losing his temper in a fit of rage like a bad husband or dad. It is God's settled, intense, personal, and judicial opposition towards particular individuals for being disobedient to Jesus and not repenting towards him whether repenting of their sins of wickedness or their sins of self-righteousness righteousness and moral self-reliance. This is personal, judicial, wrath of God. And it is on the individual, not just on groups, not just on humanity, not just on the world, not just on a system that you think has failed you or on a situation you think is unfair. It is directed towards individuals. And that wrath is damning. It sends people to hell. It sentences unrepentant sinners as individuals, body and soul, to eternal conscious torment in hell. So then what does it mean for this wrath of this God to remain on someone? That's intimidating language. And it means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means it hangs over his head now all of his life until it is redirected towards Jesus at the cross if and when a sinner turns from his unbelief and trust in Jesus. And this is Jesus talking about the wrath of God remaining on the unrepentant. God is holy. He is consecrated with a burning devotion to his own goodness and glory. And he is righteous. He is perfectly just in all his attributes and judgments. So his wrath is not an imperfection. His wrath is a function of his holiness and righteousness breaking out against all that contradicts it. And it was to suffer and satisfy this wrath, his own wrath, that he himself sent his own son Jesus to bleed and die under that condemnation of all sinners who will ever turn from their sins and trust in him. That's how good this God is. Even though he is wrathful, he makes provision for the redirection of his wrath from the one that is on to Jesus. So friend, you don't, I just want to be clear, if you're not believing these things, you can't just rest easy and say, well, man, I'm glad I don't believe what that church believes or I'd be in big trouble. Well, you, you don't have to explicitly believe this for this to be true of you. It is true of you. By Jesus' own testimony about you as one who rejects him. There's a widely mistaken notion that you can make something untrue for you just by not believing it. I mean, we don't do this in any other area of life, do we? I wish I could say, rhubarb pie is good for me, and therefore I'm going to eat it without consequence. The older I get, the less I can eat without consequence. I, 
I can't do that. I can't make something good for me that's not good for me. And if I act like that, I'm going to get a rude awakening. The same is true in your relationship to God and His wrath. The popular misconception is you just choose not to believe in God's judgment and then that judgment doesn't apply to you because that's not what you believe and therefore God's not going to hold you to that standard because you didn't accept that standard on yourself. You see, though, how that mentality is opposite of what Jesus himself is saying here. It's not that you escape God's judgment by not believing in Jesus. It's that you are liable to God's wrath and judgment precisely because you reject Jesus. God's judgment is the penalty of your unbelief in him. Why is the wrath of God on such unbelievers? The most immediate reason is verse 33. The one who receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal that God is true. Therefore, the one who rejects Jesus' testimony sets his seal that God is false. God is a liar. God is a cheat. God is a false witness. To reject Jesus is to call God himself a liar. That is no way to have any relationship with God. If someone continues to assume that you are lying to them when you, in fact, are telling them the truth, how do you think your relationship with them is going to proceed? Not well. And whose fault are you going to think that is? It's going to be their fault, not yours. You're telling them the truth, and they're calling you a liar. Yes, (laughs) right. Extend the same courtesy to God. He's telling you the truth. Don't call him a liar. He takes that personally. We have deeply offended and insulted a perfectly good, righteous, holy, and even merciful God. God's wrath, then, is the expression of his holiness being offended and his righteousness being insulted and his love not being requited by you. You're not responding to his love or his mercy or his goodness or his generosity or his patience with you, as he would have you. And he takes that personally, and he should. Sinner, your greatest problem then is not that you are angry with God. It is that God is angry at you. And therefore, it's not just that you need to be convinced or purified even, or made alive in order to be saved from God's wrath. Something must first happen in God for you to be saved from His wrath. God must stop being angry at you. His wrath must be satisfied on your behalf by being diverted away from you to someone else. And the only thing that can possibly divert and absorb God's wrath on your behalf that satisfies it, that quells, or in theological language, propitiates God's wrath, the only thing that does that is the blood of His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, since your sin makes God angry at you, Jesus' death has to have its effect on God first before it ever has any effect on you. And that is why God himself sent Jesus to take our humanity on his divinity in order to live a sinless life 
in our place and then to die under God's righteous wrath in our place as a human for humans, for our sins, to endure all God's wrath over all the sins of all who will ever repent and believe in him. And sinner, that can be you today. That can be you. Jesus must be preeminent in our discipleship. He is the one we follow and pursue, and we want to develop a following for Jesus, not for self. If others are following Jesus and making much of him, then our mission is accomplished even if they never make much of us. And Whatever influence we may have, we use it for making followers of Jesus. And Jesus must be our preeminent joy. So our joy can be full even when people fail us and forget us. And especially when we are called to suffer for the gospel. And Jesus must be preeminent in our faith to inherit eternal life. We must believe Jesus is who he says he is and that he embodies God's truth even as the whole world is trying to discredit him. He must increase and I must decrease. Friend, who is preeminent in your life? Who must be increasing for your joy to be full? Jesus or you? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that it has often been our assumption that you would make yourself great in our own greatness. That you would achieve Christ's greatness through our greatness. Yet we have seen that that is not what Jesus teaches. That is not what your word says. And so we pray that Jesus would become so valuable to us, so preeminent in our hearts, in our following of him, in our disciple-making, in what makes us joyful, in our faith, that he would be so preeminent in all these things that we would be happy to decrease, that he might increase, that it would not even be a contest or competition, that it would not be an issue, that it would simply be what we are happy to see happen So, Lord, make Jesus increase among us. And may we decrease for his sake. Make us happy, contented, joyful for that to happen. For Jesus' sake, amen.